You're listening to the Do Re Mi podcast. Well, here we are, back again, and you are listening to the Sound of Music podcast. Oh, I wanted to say, like, you are listening to the Sticks, oh. Mr. Roboto, as if we were coming back from a music break. Oh, since I think it, about it went right over yet. my head. <laughs> We tried. It didn't work. Usually we're on the same page. Not today. Not this morning. In fact, it is a bright and early morning here in Chicago. You know what it is? It's a Monday morning. Usually it's Thursday morning. We're all loosey-goosey. Loose as a goose. Today it's Monday morning. It's rough out there. I don't even know where I am anymore. I just like woke up and kind of wandered in here and I was like, huh? And then one of the people that's here already was like, why are you here? (laughs) And I said, why am I here? (laughs) Well, the important part is that you're here and we're going to talk about post-production post-production of The Sound of Music. And everything that happened after. Well, not everything, because that's just... Well, we could talk about everything. This would be the longest podcast <laughs> yeah. known to man. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're here, back for episode five. Thanks for sticking with us. Um, and we want to start off with a small corrections corner this week, um, which isn't necessarily related to Sound of Music, but you know me, I love my history, and I feel like I need to <laughs> if correct Chelsea this. Chelsea has made a mistake, it's going <laughs> to stick with her forever, even though I guarantee nobody caught this. Oh, except for Nicole. Nicole caught this. Thanks again, Nicole. <laughs> Our history buff listener. Yes. Okay, so we talked last time about the production of The Sound of Music and the locations where they're filmed at. We talked about specifically one place called Mirabel Palace, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's where the guy kept his mistress yes. and then was mad when everyone was like you have a mistress yes and um it's like, yeah you kept her in a palace right so this was prince archbishop wolf dietrich ratenau and i said last episode that he i think he was part of the royal family and like he didn't have anything going for him so they put him in the church not true a prince archbishop is according to nicole not to call you out here but it is um an elected church official so that is given, like, the honorary title of prince. So he's not royal. He's, like, elected into that office. And that's why he was replaceable when they found out that he was keeping his mistress in this Wait, place. Wait, so he's an archbishop and he had a mistress? Yes. Things that don't surprise me. Yeah. Uh, on this week, things that don't surprise me about the Catholic Church. <laughs> it's <I> episode six. <laughs> um Wait, this is episode five? That's our ne- Oh, that's yes, our next episode. Sorry, we are not grooming I know. Come right on, now. look me in the eyes. We're here. We're here. Okay. Go into our mind palace. Um, and we have one more thing before we want to jump right into post-production of the film. Grace, do you want to hit us with this? Oh, I guess. Thing? Even though I thought, okay, I haven't been practicing how I'm going to say this, but um, if you have any, you know, we shared in our first episode why Sound of Music was, like, important to us or kind of the role it played, like, growing up. So if you have any stories about the Sound of Music or why you like it so much or how often you watched it, because it seems like to be a type of movie that people watch over and over again, um, leave it in the reviews of our, like, uh, review section on iTunes podcast. This is not just to get you guys to leave reviews. It is not. But we are genuinely interested. Or you can also email us at goodeveninggirls, plural, at gmail.com. That is goodeveninggirls, plural, at gmail.com. It is not an escort agency. It is not. It's us. <laughs> it is us. It's just us. <laughs> we will hang out with you, though, for a price. <laughs> um, and so we're asking for this because we're interested in kind of showcasing a couple fun stories in one of our final podcast episodes about this. So we just really want to know how Sound of Music has affected people's lives outside of our own. Because we yeah. know that there's so many people that every time we bring up Sound of Music, they say something like, oh my God, X, Y, and Z, Sound of Music did this yeah. for me. It's either you've never seen it or you have seen it and you have seen it like a million times. Yeah. So please leave us your stories either in the reviews or send us an email. <clears throat> we would love to hear what you have to say. All right. Should we hop into it? Yes, let's jump right in. I feel like we say that all let's, the time, but what's another good segue? Uh, let's get started, baby. Let's boogie, boogie, woogie. Let's embark <laughs> on a journey. Let's hop on the ship and get going. <laughs> I remember one time, you know how when you're learning how to write essays in like the first paragraph, you have like an introduction? Yeah. And our teacher was telling us different words you could use, and mm-hmm. like someone read their example, and they were like, "Let's embark on a journey of like discussing, comparing, contrasting, whatever." And the teacher was like, uh, "I would stay away from using embark on a journey." <laughs> <laughs> well, who is this teacher? I think that's great. 
Well, this was this was for like our AP lit class, so this oh. is going to be like our AP, you know. Sure. Okay, answers. I understand. I feel felt like this was like in fifth grade when you're learning how to compare no, and no, contrast, no. like, like an Oreo to a ha- candy cane. Was it middle school? Anyways, I just thought I just always remembered that as being like a funny choice because obviously this student just like looked up in a thesaurus, like yeah. <laughs> to start. <laughs> well, let's embark. We're gonna embark on a journey together. Um, okay, so once um, the film was edited, we talked last episode about um, they had to do like a lot of dubbing because of all the rain messing up yeah. the noise, so that took a while. Um, but also. Uh, a guy named Erwin Costell. He orchestrated the musical numbers. Um, he, after the film, underscored the film with background music, which um, contained like a variation of Rodgers and Hammerstein's um, original songs. Or yeah, I'm, no. I'm imagining like in Broadway. Obviously, there's like usually like a live orchestra that kind of accompanies yeah the play. But when you transition into film, there's so much more downtime, I guess, that needs to kind of be filled with this, like, soundtrack, as yeah. it were. So even at moments where you're not really paying attention to the soundtrack, necessarily. Yeah, you probably don't even realize that there's music in the background. Yeah, there is. And this is what this guy was doing. He was kind of, like, filling in the gaps between the musical numbers. Yeah. So that took a while, obviously. Um, but once all of that was complete, like, the dubbing, the editing, the music added in, um, they... Or Wise arranged for two sneak preview showings, and the first one was in Minneapolis. That's random. On January 15th, 1965. Nothing against Minneapolis, but, like, why Minneapolis? Well, the other one was in Tulsa. Were they, like, going for a very specific audience? Because it feels, like, very specific. Like, let's go to these kind of, like, Midwestern Maybe. I mean, this was just a sneak preview. So, like, the official premiere was in New York City. Of course. But, like, why sneak preview? Like, are they trying to get... It was probably cheaper to do it there. Hmm, Interesting. Um, and there's a lot of families, maybe. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, so anyways, after the um, sneak preview, the audiences, like, loved it. But Wise was still like, it's not good enough. And so. <laughs> <laughs> Typical artist, am yeah. I right? So he did a few more, like, editing changes. Uh, and then they completed the film. The complete, like, theatrical release of the film is 174 minutes. Uh, which is long. It's it's, it's like two hours. And, it is, but it's no. still too short. Two and a half hours. Um, yeah, that's why it was like on a million VHS tapes when it came out. Yeah. Um, and it was given a G rating, which to me is kind of surprising. Do you think it would get a G rating these days with Nazis? No, probably not. At least a PG. It would get a PG because they, I think parents are nervous about. Yeah, like how it's G rated, yet to... there's like a swastika flag in it. Yeah, no. I think PG because like if this came out nowadays, parents would not want to have to like outside of a G movie explain, well, hun, a Nazi is. Although I have to say, I watched this movie as a young kid. I didn't even realize Nazis were in it. I know, like exactly. I knew that they were bad, but I didn't know what they were. Exactly. I agree. I didn't know it. I did not know either, but I'm wondering. I don't know. I Some kids probably did at least ask the question. Yeah. I didn't. I guess I wasn't I... inquisitive enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly care. what that means. You definitely need to try harder. I was like, I like the kids singing songs. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. No, right, me. <laughs> um, okay. So now for, like, marketing and distributions. The soundtrack of the film was released, and it is one of the most successful film soundtracks in history. It has sold over 20 million copies worldwide. I love that. You can also listen to it on Spotify, although I don't think it's the full soundtrack on Spotify. Because sometimes when they put soundtracks on Spotify, they take out key songs, so they want you to actually buy it, which I can get. I understand that. Well, I know I'm the only person who uses Pandora Radio, but I know that if you listen to the sound music Pandora Radio Station, I swear the only song that they have, like, rights to is the Lonely Goat Herd because it's the only song that ever comes up. We should transition to Spotify because you'll get at least you'll get at least a couple more. I know. I just don't like change. I know. It's okay. Okay. Anyways, do you think that the Von Trapps like change when they had to cross the mountains? (laughs) Don't bring that up. Um, so the guy who did the publicity campaign for the film's name was Mike Kaplan, and the tagline for the like promotional stuff was "the happiest sound in all the world," and I think that might be written on some like old. Older, uh, so it would have been the sound of music, the happiest sound in all the world. That's yeah. like kind of lame. Yeah, it's not really a good tag. Also, like, why would you use sound twice on a poster? Yeah, and the happiest sound. Sorry, Mike Kaplan, I'm not trying to like no. diminish your creativity, but I mean, whatever. Obviously, it worked. It because... worked, I guess. It's not working for me right now, but it doesn't need to because you already got me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um. Anyways, Mike Kaplan's listening to this. <laughs> Podcast is like, Sorry, oh, Mike. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Um, so the promotional artwork was a painting by Howard Turpening, and it's the um, it's like the pinkish because I feel like the the cover that we know is like the blue one of like actual Julie. It looks like a photo, but maybe it's not of Julie Andrews, and it's like on the field. It's kind of what our icon yeah looks like yeah, um, which took forever to find a like mountain that looked like the Sound of Music mountain. I'm like, how do we even search for this? But anyways, I did it. Um, But yeah, so the original one is like a painting and she's kind of wearing like a pink dress. She's carrying her like carpet bag and her guitar. Um, But that, oh, and the children and Christopher Plummer are all in the background of that one. Interesting. I think the new one is just her. Yeah, I think you're right. The blue one. Um, Okay, so then in 1964, um, Kaplan, (laughs) who we just tore down earlier yeah he well it's february 1964 weren't they still filming at this point yeah so this is like right before so he already started putting ads in trade papers like daily variety (laughs) weekly variety the hollywood reporter to attract like potential theaters who would show this so before the movie was even done um and then they they wanted like a roadshow theatrical release which was um in certain like big cities that could accommodate the 70 millimeter screenings and the six track stereophonic sound. We talked about this last time and Grace said it wasn't interesting facts, but now we know that it is extremely important whether or not theaters can actually host yeah. specific types of films with specific types of audio tracks. Sure. <clears throat> um, anyway, so this involved two showings a day with reserved seating and an intermission. So it's kind of like seeing a play. Yeah, well, you know, the, I mean, I feel like my parents used to tell me that when they went to see Gone with the Wind, there was an intermission in the yeah. middle of it. I kind of wish movies had intermissions now, though, so. to be honest. Yeah, but they don't release movies this long anymore. If uh, yeah, well, do, I still it's have like, to pee when I, know. I watch a regular movie. But it's, it's kind of weird. Like, I'm wondering if it's because Hollywood thinks that our attention spans are lower or if it's just like a changing mood in terms of like the audience. Do we actually care about these epic yeah. films anymore? Or what's the most epic film that came out recently other than Dunkirk? Yeah, well... Um, that Quentin Tarantino movie had an intermission. The one that's like it? Crazy Eight, I think. Is that what it was called? The Yeah, The Hateful Eight? Yeah, The Crazy Eight is like some <laughs> other, I'm sure, some other weird movie. Yeah, it had an intermission. Oh, I never saw it. And it, it was really freaking long, so it needed that. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, so it officially opened. Well, okay, so it did this like roadshow opening in 40 different cities, wow. which is kind of a lot. They made it seem like it was a couple cities. Um, but then it had its official premiere on in March 2nd, 1965 at Rivoli Theater in New York City. And when it first came out, Wise said that the East Coast intellectual papers and magazine destroyed us, this is a quote, but the local papers and trades gave us great reviews. So, yeah, it's like all the artisty, artsy people were like, this is terrible. But then, like, local people loved, loved it. it. That's interesting. I did hear a lot that um, it didn't actually quote-unquote, do well necessarily with the critics. Yeah. But it was the people, like, yeah. you know, the average Joes, as you will, So that really loved it. Some reviews, these are some of the bad ones. <laughs> um, the New York Times criticized the film's romantic nonsense and sentiment and the children's artificial ro- roles in Robert Weiss's cozy-come-corny direction. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, the New York Herald Tribune dismissed the movie as icky-sticky and designed for the five-to-seven set and their mommies. Wow. Um, and then McCall's Magazine called the film the sugar-coated lie people seem to want to eat and the audiences have turned into emotional and aesthetic imbeciles when we hear ourselves humming the sickly goody-goody songs. Like, um, I think you just have some things you need to work through. Yeah, really. Let yourself enjoy something. Yeah, be you know? happy once in your life. Um, but the Los Angeles Times described the film as three hours of visual and vocal brilliance, and Variety called it a warmly pulsating, captivating drama set to the most imaginative use of lilting RH tunes magnificently mounted and with a brilliant cast. So, that was nice. It was warmly pulsating. (laughs) I'm going to describe things as that from now on. Um, But (laughs) the wildly mixed film reviews was the same thing that that happened with the Broadway musical as well. Right. And I think it's interesting because when you get right down to it, when you have like these trades or, you know, these publications like talking about, oh, this movie was horrible or this this play is horrible, it really just comes down to what – whether or not the audience loves it. And it kind of shows you how disconnected sometimes, like, critics are, critics from, are from like. the greater public. Yeah. Also, don't let critics get you down. I know. Like, Robert Weiss could have easily cried at some of these He could have. Reviews. I wonder. I wonder. No, he's fine. <laughs> um, okay. So it premiered in Los Angeles, also in March. Um, 
It opened in 131 theaters in the United States, and after four weeks, the film became the number one box movie, box office movie in the country, and it held the position for 30 of the next 43 weeks in 1965. And, That's insane. And the release in America lasted for four and a half years. Yes. So theaters continued to play it for <laughs> four years. Could you imagine if that happened now? I, like if they were just like Avatar played for four years. Yeah. <laughs> no. Dunkirk played for four years. What? Were not a lot of movies coming out then? I'm not sure, but I, I'm just like my understanding of like, you know, small American towns. Like I grew up in a very small, you know, blue collar, like working class town yeah. in New Jersey. And they had a movie theater on the main street and they would play four movies. And it was like the four biggest movies that year because of how expensive it is to get the film to come in. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, and so I'm wondering if it's they knew that they could get an audience for Sound of Music. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, we know someone who said their dad would just go to the movie and watch it. <laughs> it was like right. all the time. It was his favorite movie because it was all the theater was playing yeah. ever where he was growing up. And so he would go all the time. Yeah. Which is so interesting. Um, okay. So 1969 is when it finished its four-year, four-and-a-half-year run in theaters. Um, it earned $68 million in North America and $44 million in like foreign rentals for a worldwide total of $112 million. And it oh. was the first film to gross over $100 million. Wow. Um, by 1966, it became the highest grossing film of all time. It surpassed Gone with the Wind, which had that position for 24 years. Um, and That's then crazy. In 1973, it was re-released and earned another $78.4 million in the United States. And then it was re-released in 1990, um, which increased the North American, uh, whatever, gross to $142 million. Um, and then it is the third highest number of tickets sold. We talked about this in our first episode, Behind Gone with the Wind and Star Wars, with about 283.3 million admissions worldwide. Wait, wait. So who were those critics? What did they say? <laughs> um, what's his? Pa- Pauline Kale from McCall. Judith Christ from New York Herald Tribune. Bosley Crowler from The New York Times. Fooey on Yui. <laughs> yeah, if you're listening to this, go. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, so, yeah. It, yeah. Total worldwide gross of $286 million. That's a lot. That's a lot of money. Yeah. So it did well abroad as well. Yeah. Um, So after it was released in the United States, it opened in 261 theaters overseas, and it was the first American movie to be completely dubbed in a foreign language, both dialogue and music. Whoa. Yeah. So um, German, French, Italian, and Spanish versions were completely dubbed, and the Japanese version had, was uh, the like speaking was dubbed, but the songs wasn't, which is kind okay. of, or weren't, which is kind of sad because it, I would love to listen to Sound of Music songs in Japanese. Yeah. But it's kind of cool they dubbed the music. Yeah. In, that's like that's a lot of work to dub songs, and because you have to not only get like a good translation, but also something that goes well together, like in a of song. Of course. Yeah. So I, that probably took forever. And, like, they didn't have Rodgers and Hammerstein to, you know, write in all these different languages. Yeah. So it's kind of like, good luck. Um, it'd be interesting to listen to it in German. Yeah. Um, okay, so it broke box office records in other countries as well as the United States, including the United Kingdom. Um, it earned $4 million in rentals and grossed $6 million, which is more than twice as much as any other film had taken in at the time. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, two countries where it wasn't super popular, Germany and Austria. Ah. Shocking. <laughs> um, it had to compete with the much-loved Die Trap family, which we talked about. In right. One. Of course. Um, the Austrians were upset because they felt like the costumes did not reflect traditional Austrian style, and they didn't like that they replaced Austrian folk music with Broadway show tunes. Could you imagine if it was, like, Austrian folk music? No offense <laughs> to Austrian folk music, but... I just don't think it would have had the same. No, it wouldn't have had the same effect. No. Um, and then in Germany, they didn't like the Nazi theme. Of course. Um, the Munich branch manager for 20th Century Fox approved the unauthorized editing um, of the movie. They cut the entire third act of the film following the wedding sequence and the she- the scenes showing Salzburg following the Anschluss. Uh they like cut all of that but Robert Wise in the studio found out and they were like uh yeah you can't do that and they restored the like original film and then he was fired 
Could you imagine being that branch manager and being like, hmm. Let's cut out the Nazis. I mean, no. but we talked about this. Like, it's This is a different time. Yeah, totally was... different time. And also, it was less than, what was it, 20 years? Yeah. In Germany. After, you know. That was basically the, the version of the film that I watched because I like, would never <laughs> watch the last VHS. <laughs> so you missed the whole Nazi plot line. Yeah. It's fine. Um, Okay, and then, yeah, so one of the people think the reason why it was so popular was because people kept seeing it over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cities in the United States, the number of tickets sold exceeded the total population of that city. So, like, it just goes to show that people were... Right. I bet you um, our friend's father, who saw a million times, yeah. helped <laughs> with those numbers, for sure. Of course. So, we did so well at the box office. Mm-hmm. I'm curious how we did outside of the box office and by that I mean you know the actors and their careers post Sound of Music because this is like you said one of the top grossing films of all times yeah and the first film to you know gross whatever over 100 million dollars yeah domestically so how did this affect the careers of the actors um (laughs) (laughs) nice (laughs) I feel you're giving like a PowerPoint presentation, which we essentially are. Yeah, this is a PowerPoint presentation, except there's no PowerPoint. Just our lovely voices. The PowerPoint in your mind. So right now, <laughs> your mind's a eye. picture of Julie Andrews pops up. Yes, it does. With a PowerPoint sound effect that's like gunshots. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Um, okay, Julie Andrews, where was she? So after completing The Sound of Music, um, she was actually given her own TV show called The Julie Andrews Show. Um, and she had, like, a ton of different, like, guests and stuff on, but one of which was, like, Gene Kelly. And the real Maria Von Trapp yes. came on her show and yodeled with her. Yes, and taught her how to yodel and, like, was not impressed with... But they got they, they got along. They did. get yeah. they, they did. But um, I think the real Maria was, you know, like, your yodeling's not that great, hon. Let me help you out. Yeah. You know, two girls helping each other out in this crazy, crazy world. Love saying women supporting women. <laughs> yes. Um, so before Julie, like, agreed to be doing this kind of – it's like a variety TV show, which aired in November of 1965. Mm-hmm. Before she agreed to do that, um, Sir Lou Grade um, from ABC offered her a generous five-year contract, um, which included not only her starring in this weekly television variety show, but also allowed her to do films. Um, this was similar to like what they did with the star Judy, Judy Garland in 1963. From The Wizard of Oz. <gasps> but Judy's show kind of flopped because it didn't do anything to promote her distinct personality. And so Julie Andrews was very... I feel very... kind of bad for Judy Garland. Not to make this a Judy Garland podcast. <clears throat> oh, it's... Yeah. But I feel like maybe The Wizard of Oz could be our next one. <gasps> I did love The Wizard of Oz, I did too. love it. Although that was... I think that's where my anxiety started, you know? <laughs> because of the wizard. Because of the, the tornado. I could never watch a tornado scene. It truly gave me severe anxiety, and I would have to put the movie on and run out of the room and, like, beg my parents to tell me when the, the storm was over. It sounds like your anxiety started before the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> um, anyway, so Garland's show was a flop, and Judy, or sorry, Julie was like, eh, I don't know if I want to do this because you guys kind of messed up with hers. Yeah. And they were like, no, no, no. The Julie Andrews show is all about Julie Andrews. It can't be Julie Andrews um, because without Julie Andrews, there's no Julie Andrews hour. And she <laughs> and like apparently that was good enough for her. She's like, yep, aroo. So the show premiered and um, it was a way to kind of introduce Julie Andrews to, you know, television audience. It was an entire hour um, of her showcasing her singing basically, from all these different shows she was in on Broadway. So um, My Fair Lady, this play called The Boy, Space Friend, Camelot, um, and then also her motion picture career, so Mary Poppins, and The Sound of Music, and Star, which is Star, the one one that no one knows her. Yeah. Although every time I've said, like, oh, no one knows about this, some people, like my mom, have been like, "Um, actually, like, (laughs) Uh, actually, we do know, like, uh, Shirley uh, Temple? No. Shirley Jones. Oh, okay. Who was like up for potentially being Maria. A couple people were like, she's from the Partridge family. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know who this is. <laughs> so we're just like upsetting. Right. I'd yeah. be like if someone, like a young person, was like, who's Britney Spears? And we're like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, sorry, everybody yeah. out like, there. Like, Britney Spears is a host on The X Factor. I don't know what else she's done. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, oh, wow. Um, 
So, yeah, she did that for a little bit. Um, and she also starred in a couple other movies. So in 1966, she starred in the movie um, Hawaii, which is the second gross- highest grossing film of that year. Um, and that was um, – she acted across from Max von Sydow, um, who was a famous actor. And the film was directed by George Roy Hill, who is a famous director f- known for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Sting. Ooh. Um, and I think Hawaii is like – very a very popular film. We don't know about it. Again, some <laughs> people we know might. nothing. <laughs> some people might know about it. Um, and I also wanted to say that she acted in 1966 opposite Paul Newman in the Alfred Hitchcock film Torn Curtain, which is um, a mystery political thriller about a husband defecting to the East Germany. Wow, she likes that storyline. It's kind of interesting, right? I have never even heard of that movie. Torn and Curtain? I, yeah. I took a class where we did a lot of stuff with Alfred Hitchcock. So I feel like I've heard about this film. Dude, everyone loves Alfred Hitchcock. Like, the, both the director <laughs> and the writer, I think, had worked with him. I thought him. you meant, like, everybody in the world. No. Like, well, the universal I think a lot everybody. of people do like it, but in this movie. Yeah. Seems like well, he, he was, has, like, like, a huge film catalog. It's not yeah. just, like, Psycho and the Birds. It's um, Torn Rear Burn. Window. <laughs> Sorry. North by Northwest. Yeah. There's tons. Written by our favorite writer. Yeah. Andrew Lehman, Robert Lehman. Yeah, Robert Lehman. We can't even remember his name. (laughs) Well, I know the last name. Yeah. Um, Some other big films that she was in, Thoroughly Modern Millie. That was also 1966. She was super busy. Directed again by George Roy Hill. I know, and she had like a four-year-old child. She did. Um, And George Roy Hill was the one who directed her in Hawaii. Um, And Thoroughly Modern Millie focuses on a woman who finds herself in the midst of a series of madcap adventures when she sets her sights on marrying her wealthy boss. Um, and this film was nominated for seven Academy Awards, five Golden Globes, um, and it was the ninth gr- highest grossing film in uh, 1967. Wow. Got um, Julie Andrews on your roster. Yeah, really. Star was a huge success for her, or a big film, which <laughs> apparently, apparently um, which we didn't know, know much about, but we've talked about this film before, directed by Robert Wise. This was the second film that she had to do as part of her deal for Sound of Music and yeah. whatever with Robert Wise. Um, one of her most famous films is Victor Victoria, which was in 19. 19- 82, and the film was nominated for 77 Academy Awards, um, and it won the Academy Award for Best Original Score. And it was also featured in the crossword pu- the New York Times crossword puzzle the other it was. week um, for I movies think, with a slash in it. Yeah, and I think the constructor was Christopher Adams, who is our, my, one of my new favorite crossword constructors. Yeah. Thanks for listening. <laughs> um, if you like crosswords, stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's all I'm going to say. That's, yeah, that's it. Um, okay, so Victor, Victor Victoria is like a really interesting plotline about a woman who is struggling to find work. Um, you know, she's a, a singer um, into the 1930s, and while she's trying, like, to scam a free meal out of somebody, um, they come up with this idea to, you know, she's going to impersonate... She's going to be a man impersonating a woman, so she has to, she's a woman already, so she has to impersonate the man, and then as the man that she's pretending to be, she impersonates a woman. And people are like, wow, you do a really good job impersonating women. Oh, yeah, yeah and exactly. she's like, little do you know, I am a woman. Um, and so, yeah, those are some of her bigger roles yeah. um, pre-voice loss. <sighs> yeah, which we have to talk about. Unfortunately, this still stings my heart. Outside of working in film, she was also still working in theater. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1993, she was um, acting at um, the Manhattan Theater Club in the American premiere of Stephen Sondheim's uh, Putting It Together. And in 1995, she starred in a stage musical version of Victor Victoria. Um, and it was her first uh, – that was her first Broadway show in, like, 35 years. Because I think wow. after she kind of did Sound of Music, she kind of stuck more to film, film and, like, yeah. off-Broadway stuff. So Victor Victoria was her first Broadway play in 35 years. Um, and that opened in the 25th of August – I mean, October 1995 at the Marquee Theater. Um, and then also went on for a road tour. Wait, but this is interesting. So she was the only one of that production to be nominated for a Tony Award? Oh, yes, yeah. But she declined it because she felt like the rest of the, like – play was snubbed yeah um which i thought was really moving yeah she's she's truly amazing (laughs) um so unfortunately at the end of the um run for victor victoria she was forced to quit um that was like in 1997 because she developed like a hoarseness in her voice um and she had to go into surgery um so she went into surgery at mount sinai hospital and it is stated that she went in to remove non-cancerous nodules from her throat, but 
Andrews has recently come out and said that it was not about nodules and it was, quote, due to a certain kind of muscular stritation that happens on the vocal cords um, as a result of strain from Victor Victoria, adding, quote, I didn't have cancer, I didn't have nodules, I didn't have anything. And so that was on the Sound of Music reunion show on the Oprah Winchie show. Wait, so are they saying that if she didn't have this surgery and she just, like, rested it, she could have recovered? I'm not sure. I don't know much about voices or singing, but, like, if they went into her throat and, like, messed around in there, obviously that's what fucked it up. Oh. Well, my grandmother had to get nodules removed from her throat also in the 60s. She had cancer. But her voice afterward, like, as long as I knew her, her voice was, like, super raspy. And she, like, could not yell. So they had to have known doing going into that that, like, her I voice just, would never be the same. I just can't imagine. Yeah. yeah. Ugh. I know. Um, anyway, so she emerged from surgery with permanent damage that destroyed the purity of her singing voice um, and then gave her a rasp when she was speaking. Can you um, – oh, my gosh. I, I can't imagine to, like, being, like, such just... a good – like, ha- being so talented and getting that taken away from you. Going from singing in front of the king and queen. Yeah. Like, I'm mad that I can't sing that well. Could you, I couldn't imagine, like, being an amazing singer and then being like, oh, just kidding. Right. And, and you have to remember, like, most of her career – is based off of this skill. Yeah. Not to say that she's not an incredible actress, because she is, mm-hmm. but most of her famous roles Are revolve singing. around singing. Sound of Music, Star, Thoroughly Modern Millie, yeah. Victor Victoria. It's terrible. Yeah. It's so you can imagine like what this does to a career after she loses that skill. Um, so this was... No, her surgery was in the 90s. Um, oh. And so... Yeah, so in 1999, she actually filed a malpractice suit against the doctors at Mount Sinai Hospital, Um, specifically the doctors who operated on her throat, um, because they assured her that she would regain her voice within six weeks. But um, Andrew's stepdaughter, Jennifer Edwards, said um, in 1999, quote, it's been two years and her singing voice still hasn't returned. The lawsuit was settled in September 2000 for an undisclosed amount. It's just no, no amount of money can ever bring back no what we lost no um and so obviously well she had four more surgeries after that and they were able to improve her speaking voice but not her singing voice right because her voice isn't that raspy now no no no. she just sounds she sounds like her yeah but she just doesn't sing whoopsies that's an email shut up shut up um so that was that she kind of lost her singing voice and so I want to talk about, you know, her most popular film post Voice Loss, yeah. which is like a very important film, I think, for, you know, young people, girls in particular of our age set, mine and Grace's age set. Um, and By the, the way, we're 22. Yeah, we're 22. <laughs> <laughs> we're in our mid, mid to late 20s. We're in our mid 20s. Yeah, mid 20s. It. Yeah. yeah, it's fine. Um, in 2001, The Princess Diaries came out. and. Yeah. That's, you know. And everyone was like, oh, my God. Because it's like actress. definitely us who watched her in Sound of Music. Oh, my God. Like, didn't, I mean, I didn't watch, like, Victor Victoria and stuff right, at that course. age. Yeah. But then Princess Diaries came out, and it was like, she's the perfect, like, royal grandmother to come in and exactly. tell you you're a princess. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think there are rumors, and Hathaway and Julie are kind of toying with the rumors that there may be another Princess Diaries, Princess Diary 3. Oh, really? Because there's like a million books. Yes, there's a million books. I read them all. Um, but no, I think they're trying to do like... A, oh my God. I think they're both interested in doing it, but I think Anne Hathaway said, um, we're just waiting for like the perfect script, the perfect story. We want it to be perfect. And I think that's important, especially in this kind of climate. Yeah. Well, especially- Things are so much... They're different from how they were in the early 2000s. Yeah, and Anne Hathaway is, like, huge now. Yeah. You know, this was, like, her – would you say it was, like, her breakout role? It might be. I don't know. This isn't an Anne Hathaway podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe next after Wizard of Oz we'll do this. Anne Hathaway. (laughs) Um, So in 2007, Andrews was honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Screen Actors Guild. Um, And she stated there that her goals were to continue to direct for the stage and possibly produce her own Broadway musical. Because, yes, she was at this point kind of directing small off-Broadway shows, which I love. Um, In 2009, Andrews was named um, on the Times list of the top ten British actresses of all time, next to Helen Mirren, Helena Bonham Carter, Judi Dench, and Audrey Hepburn. Audrey Hepburn, her her, temporary. I wonder if they are friends. I hope so. 
Well, I think Audrey Hepburn is, has she's passed dead. away. Yeah. yeah, but like I wonder if they were. <laughs> I love it. You're dead. She's dead, and I'm like she passed away. <laughs> well, I would. I I know a lot of people. I feel like are big Audrey Hepburn Hepburn fans. I love. Her. I never like got. I have nothing against her. I'm not saying I sure. don't like her, but no, I never sure. like got. I feel like there was a certain time, like in high school, when girls like really got loved her, that, and yeah. I never got into that. Yeah. But they were around at the same time, doing the same type of stuff. So they I wonder were. if they were friends or if they had a like. Right. Well, Audrey was rivalry. with Paramount, yeah. and Judy was with 20th Century Fox. So maybe not. Maybe yeah, they didn't run in the same circles. Well, there was only like 10 actresses at the time, so <laughs> you're right. Um, so. Andrews has also published several books, mainly children's books and also autobiographies under her name, as well as a pen name, Julie Andrews Edwards or Julie Edwards. Um, And on May 18, 2010, Andrews' 23rd book, which she wrote with her daughter, Emma, was published. And in June of 2010, the book called, quote, The Very Fairy Princess reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list for children's books. What she's a successful children. Well, it probably helps that she's also Julie Andrews. Yes, but I'm jealous. Twenty <laughs> third book was in 2010. Everyone, twenty third. I have zero books. Yeah. Um, what have we done with our lives? Yeah, nothing. nothing. Um, Home, a memoir of my early years, is her best selling memoir, um, and it was written by her and it was published in 2008 by Hyperion, and it tells the story of her life up until 1963 when she left England for Hollywood to shoot Mary Poppins. So that kind of explains her whole childhood and oh, like, yeah. career before she became this massive star. So that's like extra reading if you want. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's something I would buy because I would totally read. It's Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Right before Mary Poppins, I feel like Mary Poppins is when people, like the general public started to care about her. So it's yeah. kind of interesting to see like what led up to that. Right. And she had like a really crazy childhood. So She did. So I'm sure it's... And apparently Home, A Memoir of My Early Years is part one of a part two uh, memoir series. The next one is Away From Home, a memoir of my mid-years. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, just throwing that out there as a potential. In case Julie yeah. needed help with the titles, we've got it. Um, okay, so now let's go on to Christopher Plummer. So he has done so – he has had, like, a crazy career, so I cannot right. talk about everything Julie he's Andrews done. did not have such a crazy career. Yeah. I, I, I mean, realized. she was in giant things, but yeah. Christopher Plummer has done, like, a million things. So um, – after Sound of Music, he was on Broadway still. Um, he did a lot of plays in New York. He moved to London. Um, and then some award-winning Broadway plays. Um, he was the title character in Cyrano and won the Tony Award for Best Actor in a Musical. He's won, like, a bunch of Tonys. Best Actor in a Musical. So I'm guessing they didn't dub his voice Yeah, for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then in the 1980s, he did Othello. And he was nominated for a Tony in Othello, but I don't think he won. Did he play Othello or was he Iago? Do you know what he He was in Othello. Okay. Um, and then in 1994, he was in a play called Barrymore, and he won a Tony for that. And in 2004 and 2007, he was nominated for Tonys in King Lear and Inherit the Wind. So he was really into Shakespeare. Yes, I think. But he was always doing Shakespeare yeah. plays. Yeah. So when he before he did Sound of Music, he was doing mainly Shakespearean theater, yeah. which is if you're British, like when you go through like classical acting training, they it's like Shakespeare. You do yeah. Shakespeare. And that's like very, very serious. And it's also like one of the most competitive things you could do. So for him, like we said, going to Sound of Music was a departure for him. Yeah. Imagine going from doing like Othello and King Lear, and now you're to being suddenly Captain Von Trapp singing Von Trapp. Edelweiss with your yeah. estranged children. Yeah. yeah. So basically, every decade he was like nominated for a Tony, so no big deal. Good for him. Um, okay, and then on TV, he appeared in almost 100 television roles. Um, he was in Jesus of Nazareth, and he was in The Thorn Birds, which was an Emmy award-winning show. Um, he was in a lot of Emmy award-winning show- shows: Nuremberg, Little Moon of Albin, The Money Changers. Um, for which he won his first Emmy Award as an outstanding lead actor in a limited series. I don't think he's an EGOT winner. Oh. Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. He hasn't won a Grammy. No. But Which, I mean, maybe he never will because I no. loved his voice. Yeah. Um, okay, and then, this is exciting. So uh, he w- there was a movie called On the or On Golden Pond, which is an adaptation of a play, and he was on it with Julie Andrews. And, of course, everyone, like, freaked out when it came out. <laughs> um but yeah, I thought that was I'd cute, and out. I want to watch it. Yeah, we should. Yeah, that was like they they like reunited on. Oh, the, reunited, yeah. and it feels so good. Um. Okay, so he has been in a lot of movies. Um. Right after Sound of Music, he was in Oedipus the King and The High Commissioner. 
Um, he was in Battle of Britain. He was in The Royal Hunt of the Sun. He had a lead in a musical called Lock Up Your Daughter. So he was in another musical movie yeah, in calm 1969, down, Chris. which is only Chris. like, you know, five years after. I mean, he probably did it for the money. Not saying that that's bad. I'm not criticizing him at all. It seems like you are. No. I mean, sometimes I can't blame. it's kind of like there are certain actors that they do all these like tiny like passion projects like Oedipus the King or The High Commissioner, which are films we've never heard of. Yeah. But then he like goes on to do like a musical. Well, to, I've like, never heard of Fund of his... Your Daughters. Yeah. Well, I haven't heard of a lot of these movies that he was True. in. Maybe some people would be mad if, yeah. Uh, some that stick out to me, The Return of Pink Panther. Julie Andrews did a voice in The Return of Pink Panther, but she was uncredited. Just saying. Oh. Yeah. Just keeps bringing them together. I know. Um, Dragnet. In 1987, which I know. Star yeah. Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country in 1991. <laughs> Malcolm he, X, which... He, he used to be so picky about his films, but he's doing Star Trek. And that's not... I'm not criticizing yeah. Star Trek, but um, he was like, oh, I only do Shakespeare, and now he's on Star Trek. Anyway. He has done, like, basically every year he does a movie. Um, he was in Malcolm X. These are starting to become ones that sure. I know. Um, Twelve Monkeys. Must Love Dogs, 2005 romantic comedy with, uh, I think, Adrian Grenier is in it. So I don't know who he is in that. Um, he was also in The Lake House. Right. Yeah. He was in The New World, which is a really, really good film. Oh, I've never heard of it. It's Terrence Malick. It's about, you know, The New World, Pocahontas. Oh. John Rolfe. No, I haven't heard of it. It's really good. Um, okay. So, yeah. He's been in a lot of movies hmm. is what I'm trying to say. Cool. Um, but one of his most acclaimed roles in film was um, in The Insider in 1999. Um, and it was a biographical film. It was nominated for a lot of critics awards for best supporting actor but no academy awards at this point he had not won any he had won a bunch of tonys but no oscars or anything wow yeah um then he was also in a beautiful mind right he Mm -hmm. was an inside man um he was the philosopher aristotle and alexander alongside colin farrell one of my faves (laughs) um and he was also in national treasure he was yes which... (laughs) which i haven't seen yeah um wait you haven't seen national treasure no who are you? I don't know. It doesn't appeal to me. What do you mean? They're stealing the... I know. The Declaration of Independence. I feel like I know enough about it to get references. I don't have to see it. I don't know. What? I, just I feel like I'm not blink. a huge Nicolas Cage. Like, nobody is a huge Nicolas Cage fan. You think that I'm a huge Nicolas Cage yes, fan? Yes, you kind of seem like it when you're talking <gasps> about National Treasure. <sighs> um, he also did some voice work. Cool. So he was... Henri the Pigeon in an American Tale. Which is one of my favorite childhood movies of is all it really? time. Yeah, that's the somewhere. Okay, no. Out there. <laughs> well, he's in that. <laughs> um, he's also in Rockadoodle. Um, he is Charles Muntz in Up. Oh my God, that's funny. Um, and then he is an elder leader in a Tim Burton uh, film called Nine. Never heard of that in film. In 2009. Um, okay, so in 2010, he finally received his first Academy Award nomination um, for his portrayal of author Leo, T- Leo Tolstoy in The Last Station. That was a good role for him. In 2009. And he said, well, I said it's about time. I mean, I'm 80 years old, for God's sake. Have mercy. <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't win. I think he lost to... Um, he lost to Christopher Waltz for Inglorious Bastard, I believe. Oh, really? Yeah. That, man, that was that long ago. Um, okay, so then he in 2011, he received his second nomination um, for Best Supporting Actor for his performance in Beginners. Which is another great performance for him. Um, and he won. I forgot that he won. Yeah. That's amazing. So he, he won when he was 82 years old, and he is still the oldest actor to ever win an Academy Award. <sighs> and when he accepted the award, he said, you're only two years older than me, darling. Where have you been all my life? <laughs> <laughs> he means the Academy. Yeah. Which I love. Yeah, it's adorable. And then um, he also was nominated for uh, when he replaced Kevin Spacey in All the Money in the World. He was nominated and he didn't win, but he was 83, I think, when he was nominated, which makes him the oldest nominee for an Oscar <laughs> ever. Um, but he was recast to play Kevin Spacey. We've already talked about this. Mm-hmm. But uh, he, the writer or director says that he was the original choice for the role. Wow. So I wonder what happened, whether it was like a conflict of schedules or something. Yeah. And then maybe since it was later when they were refilming, they were like, can you do it now? But I also feel like Christopher Plummer and Kevin Spacey aren't, they're like not even the same age at all. So how could they they both be Kevin Spacey? Okay. Yeah. Um, Okay. And then his personal life. So he was married um, 
he was on his second marriage when he was doing Sound of Music, and now he's on his third marriage. English actress Elaine Taylor, they were married in 1970, and they live in Weston, Connecticut. I went to school in Connecticut. Have you ever seen Christopher Plummer at, like, Publix? Or no. Or I guess they don't have Publix They don't have Publix there. They have Stop and Shops. Have you seen him at a Stop and Shop? No, I haven't. <laughs> I guess if you had, you probably would have mentioned it, like, yes. the first time we ever talked. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's Christopher Plummer. A very brief synopsis on his life because he has done a lot. But Sorry, I'm, I got to go to Weston, Connecticut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bye. End of the podcast. Yeah. It's been nice. It's been fun. But has it been real? Fun. I mess it up. It's been real. It's been fun. But has it been real fun? It hasn't. All right. Let's it talk hasn't. about the kids. Let's talk about the kids. The children. Not that uh, Charmaine Carr was really a child. She was 19. Yeah. Um, or 20. Yeah. So we're going to start with Charmaine Carr. She played Liesl. Um, and after the film, um, she went on to own an interior design firm called Charmaine Carr Designs in Encino, California. She also wrote two books, Forever Liesl and Letters to Liesl, which are like her memoirs. Yeah. Um, she reunited with many of her co-stars on the Oprah Winfrey show in 2010 to celebrate the 45th anniversary of the film. Um, and then in 2014, this is my favorite like little thing that we're going to do this whole episode. Can you hear my excitement? Um, in 2014, Carr recorded Edelweiss um, with the great-grandchildren of the Von Trapps on the, the album Dream a Little Dream by the Von Trapps and the band Pink Martini. And are we going to play a sample of We are going to play a sample. If we can. We are definitely playing the sample, so just stay tuned, and here it is. Edelweiss, Edelweiss, every morning you greet me, small and white, clean and bright you look happy to meet me and there it is everyone <laughs> wasn't it amazing i like how you said stay tuned and then like one <laughs> second later <laughs> yeah so that was uh charmaine carr and you can hear she's older obviously in the yeah. song but it's just really nice to hear her singing and i also love that the fact that she sang it with the great-grandchildren of, of the, the Von, real Von yeah. Trapps. And all four, full circle, full circle. I want to say her book, Letters to Liesl, is like a collection of people who have like written her in the, like telling her about how sound music affected their life. Oh, you're life. right. Yeah. You're right. Which is what we're asking you to do. Yeah. Letters to us. <laughs> about Liesl. <laughs> yeah. Um, unfortunately, uh, Charmaine died in Los Angeles on September 17, 2016 from comp Applications related to frontotemporal dementia, and she was 73 years old. That's so young. It is extremely young. I mean, Christopher Plummer's still alive. Yeah. Julie Andrews is still alive. It's, it's very sad. Um, next, we have Nicholas Hammond. He played Friedrich, um, and he continued acting um, throughout the rest of his life, and even today, he's not dead, so he's still there <laughs> acting. <laughs> what a weird way to say it, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> From 77 to 79, um, he played the role for which he's perhaps best known outside of Sound of Music. Thank you very much, Wikipedia. Um, he played Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man in the television I didn't series. Know that. The Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Um, and he kind of described his approach to the character as, quote, I liked the idea of taking a fantasy hero and making him believable as a person. I made it clear going into it that I wasn't interested in doing something that was just a campo joke. And I think that's probably like a dig maybe at the Adam West Batman. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I don't blame him. I wouldn't want to, you know, do this either. Yeah. Uh, and he also guest starred in a number of TV shows in the early 80s, including The Love Boat, Magnet P.I., Murder, She Wrote. Um, and she he also replayed occurring roles in Falcon Crest and Dallas. Those are two big shows. Yeah, those are all big shows. Yeah. Um, so he was cast as like a yachtsman in a sh uh, Australian TV sh miniseries in 1986 called The Challenge. Um about the 83 Americans Cup Challenge, which I don't even know what that is. Is that yeah. like a boating challenge? Um, and he loved Australia so much that he decided to stay. He was like, screw it, I'm staying. Um, and he later became an Australian citizen, um, and he does work in TV miniseries and stuff and films filmed in Australia. Um, and now he's a writer for Australian television, and he's written um, for miniseries A Difficult Woman and the TV movie Secret Men's Business. Um, and he also made his directing debut in 2009 um, with a play called Lying, Cheating, Bastard, which he co-wrote with 
Magician James Galea. He wrote a play with the magician? What am I doing with my life? I know. I'm not doing that. Man, everyone has... Is so, so far, talented. so good. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Heather Menzies, uh, she played Louisa. Um, she went on to appear in a bunch of different... Oh. Sorry, we've got construction going on outside. Um, so Menzies went on to appear uh, in a number of different television series like Alias Smith and Jones, TJ Hooker, Dragnet, Bonanza, Marcus Welby, MD, The Bob Newhart Show. Um, and she starred as Jessica Six in the short-lived TV series Logan's Run. Um, she was also in the film Hawaii, which she was in with, with Julie, Julie Andrews. Andrews. Um, she was in How Sweet is Life, Hail Hero, Piranha, and Endangered Species. Funnest fact I found about Heather Menzies, she was featured in a Playboy magazine shoot during the 1973, uh, during one of the 1973 editions, um, in a pictorial titled, quote, Tender Trap. T-R-A-P-P. In reference to her Sound of Music roles. Yeah, we got that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. You can Google the photo shoot. It exists. And it's true. It's not like overly sexual or anything. It's not like yeah. super racy. I mean, I don't think a lot of those were necessarily. Yeah. But it's That's there. awesome, though. Yeah, good for her. More power to her. Um, um, and so Heather was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer in November 2017, and she, desi- she died on December 24th, 2017, yeah. 21 days after her 68th birthday. Wow, she's young, too. She had three children, eight grandchildren, and one great-grandchild. Wow. So very, very young. Um, Dwayne Dudley Chase played Kurt, um, and in so he didn't really continue to do acting mm-hmm. at all, which I've learned. But um, in the summer of '69, Chase joined the United States Forest Service in Santa Barbara um, after graduating from Rolling Hills High School of Rolling Hills, California, um, and then he eventually went on to study at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Um, and he graduated with a BS in geology. Wow. He's very well-rounded. He's very well-rounded. He didn't continue acting. Um, so after working at a Chevron refinery in Denver for a year, he then enrolled in the University of Alabama and got his master's degree in geology. This guy loves rocks. He loves it. But uh, not too much, I guess, because today he lives in Seattle and he designs computer software for, for geologists. geologists and geophysicists. Okay, so maybe he likes them a little bit still. Wow, that's awesome. Right, and you can find him on LinkedIn, not to be weird, but I did look at his LinkedIn profile and it doesn't mention anything about the sound of music. And personally, if I was looking to hire him in a role to design computer games for geologists, that's not what he's designing. Can you imagine <laughs> if he came in though and you're like, wait, are you Kurt from the sound of music? If I was... In any movie, like, I was an extra in Marley Me, and I feel like I try to bring up as much as possible. If I was, like, actually, like, one of a lead, like, role in a movie, I would talk about it constantly. I know. I know. I mean, I know. But I guess he's more humble. He's humbler than than us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So Angela Cartwright played Brigitte, and she went and played a bunch of different roles on television. She played Penny Robinson in a TV series called Lost in Space. Um, She made appearances on My Three Sons, Adam 12, The Love Boat. Um, And she was also in movies Scout's Honor and um, High School USA. Her most recent feature film, she was in Beyond the Poseidon Adventure. Um, And she was in Lost in Space, the film. And she's been a photographer for 30 years, and she has her art displayed at her studio uh, in Studio City, Los Angeles. Wow. Yeah. And Angela Carwright actually is one of the main members of the acting children who kind of, like, tries to keep the family together. Yeah. She even has a – so definitely check out her website. She's got a really interesting website, which talks a lot about her career and, like, everything that she's done. Mm -hmm. But it also talks about The Sound of Music 7, as they call themselves. Yeah. and it there's photos, there's little factoids. I couldn't include everything, but I love it when actors like still talk about their like biggest because I feel like some actors try to like push themselves away from their like biggest role or like their mm-hmm. breakout role because they don't want to always be associated with it. Right. But I like ones who like Daniel Radcliffe, for example, could be like never talk about Harry Potter, but he does because he knows that like people love Harry Potter so much and he doesn't want to ruin that for people. Yeah. It's it's sweet. Yeah. Um, would recommend checking out her website. Um, Debbie Turner played Marta. As an adult, she uh, pursued interior design in Beverly Hills and Newport Beach. Um, and, ve- and eventually she opened a floral and event design company now known as Debbie Turner Originals. Um, and since the early 90s, she's been designing collectible Santa Claus dolls as well. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> these people have like the best jobs ever. I know. I know. Can you hire us? Um, so her company, actually, Debbie Turner's original, was awarded the title Preferred Florist for the Republican National Convention oh. held in St. <laughs> Paul, Minnesota. I was like, that's when I read just the first part. I was like, that's cool. Yeah. The second part is. So, woof. Yeah. Let's move on from that. <laughs> um, Nothing against um, Debbie Turner. Debbie. Debbie is also one of the kind of ringleaders in um, the Sound of Music 7 stuff. Kim Carrath, she played Gretel. After Sound of Music, she primarily was in American television, um, Family Affair, The Brady Bunch, Lost in Space. I would love to see which Brady Bunch episode she was in. Um, And then she remains friends with the other Von Trapps today. Um, And she actually went, all of them, in 2000 and just 2000, went back to Salzburg and they shot a documentary about the making of Sound of Music for a British TV show. I found out this on Angela Cartwright's website, website, cool. um, which is a treasure trove of interesting facts and photos. Just say <laughs> review from Chelsea. That's my notes, which I thought was I should, you know, bring up. Um, okay, Daniel Truite, Rolf. He um, after high school he received a scholarship to the Pasadena Playhouse, um, and he also intended um, the Ambassador College in pa- Pasadena. Um, and after filming The Sound of Music, he joined the Marine Corps. Marine Corp? Marine Corps. 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 I think the, it's like Peace Corps. Oh, I see. Marine Corps. <laughs> In 89, he moved. Marine Corps, because they work out their core. Right. Have you seen that office? Yeah. It's, it's a reference from the office. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so in 1989, True Hype moved to North Carolina, and then finally he moved to a different place in North Carolina. <laughs> he loves North Carolina, baby. Uh, and he began teaching on performers, and he pre- appeared on an episode of it. Entertainment Tonight titled A Day in the Life of Dan Truhype um, in 1993 after the old Concourse Theater of Concord, Connecticut asked him to play Captain Von Trapp in their production of The Sound of Music. <gasps> oh my gosh, he grew up to become his right movie dad. Turned his life around. Um, so he, I think he played Captain Von Trapp again. That's awesome. In another theater in North Carolina. Good for him. Yeah. So, you know what, Rolf, you were a Nazi first. Oh, I guess it wasn't his dad. But he really, yeah, he was like, you know what, I'm not going to be a Nazi anymore. Um, and I think, <laughs> I actually think Daniel Truhite is part of the Sound of Music group as well. Yeah. Well, he's definitely active on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and he sometimes, I saw that he tweeted sometimes about Sound of Music. So Cool. Yeah. Um, so, Eleanor Parker, she played the Baroness. Um, so, she was actually like a huge actress before The Sound of Music and kind of yeah. didn't really do much after the fact. She was huge in, like, film noir, like, crimey type movies. Mm-hmm. Those um, are like, say, hey, say, kids, yeah. where's this gun from? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great representation. Thanks. I could see her being in that. She yeah. has that, like, kind of like old film vibe to her. Vibe. Yeah. Um, in 1966, she was in a film called Warning Shot, directed by Buzz Kulik, who's most known for his episodes of The Twilight Zone. Um, and then she started to do mainly TV movies and TV sh- um, and like the TV show Bracken's World into the 70s. Um, and she was also in a number of theater theatrical productions. Um, Applause was a big one. She was in the Broadway musical version of the, fil- of the film All About Eve. Um, and this was actually uh, originally played in the musical by Lauren Bacall and Betty Davis. Hmm. Interesting, right? And so before Sound of Music, she was nominated for three best actors in the 50s, actress awards in the 50s for the film um, Interrupted Me- Melody, Caged, and Detective Story. All films I've never heard of. Detective Story is like an old timey yeah. film noir. Yeah, it must crime. be. Yeah. Hey, your kids. Um, and that's all we have, I think. Yeah. Well, that's everyone. No, there were a lot of them. <laughs> we cannot go over every single character. I mean, we could if you have, like, 28 hours. I don't. I think I do. Okay. Well, that's it. Chelsea, you have yeah. your own. Well, she, she I'll just... have, like, an ancillary podcast, which you can tune into just to hear me. Minor characters. And of... all the history. I feel like <laughs> there is a podcast or there's something where they – no, maybe it's just a guy who tweets minor characters of – movies like a character who had one line maybe in like a cult movie and like messages them and it's like hey i loved you in like american pie i like that i'm like this person is my spirit animal because well i don't sorry i don't mean spirit animal i don't like to use that word but this person is my soulmate because i also did that with um are you afraid of the dark 
I like, do? Well, I found all the actors and actresses who had very unique last names. I searched them all on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I sent them a message being like, oh, my God, were you in? <laughs> this is like my How freshman year of college. How old were you? <laughs> and one person I was like, were you in? Are you afraid of the dark? And they were like, I don't know, maybe. I'm like, maybe. What? You, def- you definitely were. Like, she was like, or they were like, yeah, I acted as a kid. And I was like. It's not like you were four in the right. Like show. what you would know. They're just yeah. trying to be coy, I guess. Yeah. Um, um, anyways, well, that's interesting. That's a fun fact about me. I like that. I don't have any fun facts about me. My fun fact is that I'm factless. <laughs> <laughs> Full circle right. here. Um, so before we go, just a quick reminder that if you have any sound of music related stories, let about, us know. Yes, please do. We're looking for how it has affected your life just funny little instances you have revolving around sound and music maybe what's the first time you saw were you an adult like what has it done for you and please send that to us in an email goodeveninggirls at gmail.com that's goodeveninggirls or write it as a review and be like I love these ladies five stars also this is my experience with sound and music yeah we'll take either we'll take both whatever you want to do yeah all right. All right. Well, that's happy it. Monday, everyone. I guess next, this is actually Tuesday when you'll be listening to this. Our next episode, we will be talking about um, like stories that people send us. Hopefully, they please, will. please, please. Well, okay. I already know a couple people I know in real life. I can force to send us stuff. So yeah. there will be stories, there will. whether you like it or not. <laughs> um, and then also, it'll be about uh, the sound music today, like all the mm-hmm. how it's you know still or iterations of the movie afterwards mm-hmm. and how it's still around today yeah and all the sound and music things you can do in life yeah i'm leaving that a little bit vague because there's a lot of things you could just you dress up as julie andrews which is what i do every day yeah before i come to work <laughs> yeah i love your um corseted dress thank you <laughs> and your pixie cut it yes looks very nice. thanks um okay it's a new look i'm trying yeah anyway that's it that's it all right all right adieu adieu to you and you and you bye bye